Um, I was on vacation last week, and I came back, and everything is haywire. Um, they, they upgraded um, our, uh, our software that does our presentation stuff, and it's having problems, so we will be downgrading that this week, um, back to put it back. Um, lucky for you, if you're at this service, um, the last service came in, and there was no air conditioning working. Um, so uh, who knows what's going to happen? This is exciting. This is like, you just don't know what's going to happen next. Um, but before we uh, dive into the message, let me, let me pray. Father, um, we, we just ask you to govern over all of this. Um, God, I don't know what's going on today, but I know that you've got plans for each and every one of us. So don't let anything crazy distract us from the, the truth that you want to convey to each of us. This invitation to, uh, to approach you and to dwell in your presence. God, let, let, um, just help us be hyper-focused by your spirit and help us to, uh, to understand what's on the table for us today and to take hold of your invitation. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. Um, I remember my first brush with royalty. I don't know if you ever met royalty. It wasn't, it wasn't actual royalty. It was what I'd consider American royalty. Uh, it happened back in seminary here in St. Louis. And uh, my wife and I, Jocelyn, we had this opportunity to live in the carriage house. So kind of this small apartment above um, some garages on the, uh, on the land, on the, on the property of uh, former U.S. Senator Jack Danforth. Now, if you lived in St. Louis a while, you know the Danforth name, not only because he was a senator, um, but also because the Danforth family is kind of this well-known family in St. Louis. Um, his grandfather founded Ralston Purina, which is a company you probably heard of. And, uh, and so there's this family, that, there's the Danforth Foundation. They've done incredible things all around St. Louis and Washington University and the Danforth, uh, Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. And, and, uh, and so we had a chance to live there. We lived in this carriage house, and we lived there rent-free. They even covered all of our utilities, which when you're a seminary student is a pretty sweet deal. Free is good, right? Heck, when you're 38 years old, free is still good, right? Um, there, there's no age limit on free. And so we, we were just blown away by this opportunity to live there and to, uh, to live there with these, these really fine people. And on our end, what we had to give back was, was just a few simple things. Every day they asked us to get the mail and bring it into the house. Easy enough. On weekends, they would spend a lot of time other places, and so on weekends, when they had, um, when their other staff wasn't there, we would, um, we would have to water their flowers and uh, take care of, they had some birds and a, a dog, let the dog out, and, and that's what we'd have to do on the weekends. And then we had some other really hard things to do, like on the weekends when they were gone, we had to swim in their pool, <laughs> just so the water would get nice and agitated, I guess, so we had to do that. Um, but I had a special job there at the Danforth house. One of my other responsibilities was that when Mr. Danforth would travel outside of regular business hours, it was my responsibility to take him to or from the airport, which was kind of a cool thing to do, honestly. There was this whole ritual that I would have to go through. Um, I first, I, I didn't drive my car. I was, I was instructed to drive a certain car that they had, and I would, I would go and I'd get that car and I'd drive it to the airport. And this was back before September 11th, where, um, where airport security is a little different. So I'd actually park in the parking structure, and I'd walk through the uh, security. I'd go all the way to the gate. You know, I'd look up on the monitor, see which gate he was coming in. I'd be standing there at the gate, waiting for him when he got off the plane. And, and he, for some reason, he always got off the plane relatively quickly. For me, I, it always takes a long time. I think he was sitting in a better spot in the plane. So I didn't have to wait very long. And, uh, and he'd come off the plane, and if you've ever seen him, he's, he's, he's this very tall man, and he's got this, you know, gray hair, and he's very stately looking, just a very impressive looking guy. Um, and he'd, you know, he'd come off, off, the, uh, off the jetway, and, and uh, he'd see me there, and he'd greet me, and, and he'd hand me his bag that he was carrying. 
And, uh, and then we'd start walking through the airport. And it was kind of cool because as we'd walk through the airport, there'd be all of these people who would notice him. And, you know, they'd nod and some people would thank him for his service or other people would just kind of whisper to each other. And there I am walking next to him carrying his bag. <laughs> you didn't know how important I was, did you? Um, yeah, and I am your pastor. I mean, you should be blessed, right? Um, so, so we do that. We go to baggage and I grab his other bag and we load it in the car. And then I would drive the car home. And, uh, and, and this drive home was always something that I had like a lot of just consternation about because th- there was so much in me that wanted to talk to him about all the impressive things that he was doing. I mean, he would come home from diplomatic missions to Russia. I mean, there was one time he had met with Vladimir Putin and he had been to the Sudan trying to broker peace there. There were times he would return from the White House after meeting with President Bush and Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell. And, and I knew some of that. I knew where he was and yet I didn't want to be nosy. And worse, I wanted so badly for him to be impressed with me. And so we'd be driving home and, and there'd be all these questions I would have or, or these conversations I would want to bring up. But I would be at such war within myself that I would either say nothing at all, or just quiet, which I'm sure he appreciated. Because on the other days when I wasn't quiet, I, I, I would just start rambling trying to make myself sound impressive, which was not easy to do because, you know, while he was off meeting with President Bush, I was studying Greek vocabulary all day, which is not that exciting. So uh, no one needs to hear about that. Um, Strangely enough, Mr. Danforth still acknowledges that he knows me, um, even after all of this. He's a good man. But today I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had moments like that? When you are encountering encountering someone who's, who's really important or maybe it's someone you really respect and you have a chance to interface with them, you have a chance to talk with them, and yet you don't really know how to handle yourself. See, that's what we're talking about today and really throughout this series. We're talking about this invitation that we are given by, by God, our King, to sit with Him, to, to talk with Him, to commune with Him, to dwell with Him. And we're talking about how that is both an honor and a terror for all of us. This invitation to come into the presence of our God and our King. And, and I think if, 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 uh, if, if you're honest with yourself, you realize that we don't always handle that invitation very well. Today to talk about this, I want to share a story with you of King David. We've been looking at him over the course of this series. And uh, King David, this, this story just baffles me because King David was a man who had a deep, intimate relationship with God. He's known in Scripture as, as a man after God's own heart. It's kind of his designation. And, uh, and I think, man, if that's true of David, if David's known as a man after God's own heart, then surely he should have been comfortable being in God's presence. Except today we're going to find out that that was not always the case, that David himself was intimidated by being in God's presence. So, so David's story today starts, I'm going to tell you it and then we'll look into scripture. Uh, David's story starts during the season of his life where he has moved into a new capital city. So he's king over, Jer- all, of, over all of Israel and he moves his capital to a city called Jerusalem, which you've all heard of, but it wasn't really much of anything until David moved his capital there. So David establishes Jerusalem as his new capital city. He's the king over all of Israel. Things are going well. And David decides that what he wants to do now, after he's built a palace for himself and he's living there, is he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you know that I said the Ark of the Covenant is this sacred memory box that God gave to the, uh, to the Israelites. It contains some special relics of God's favor and his blessing over their history. It was kind of these reminders that God was with them and that he was loving and that he was powerful and good. And so this was this special thing. But the Ark of the Covenant was also um, seen as, as uh, God's earthly throne. 
It was the place that God would descend when he came to dwell with his people. And so David decides that he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem because he wants to bring God's throne to his capital city. It's David's way of honoring God and saying, hey, I'm the king, but God is the real king here. Not only that, David wants God's presence near. He wants God to dwell in the same city that he's dwelling in. He wants God to be near him. So it's, it's really an honorable thing. And, and so David begins his work. And uh, he sends a delegation of men to go to the place where the ark is currently kept. And um, these men are, are good men. They're holy men. Uh, they, they come with a cart or a wagon. It's drawn by oxen. There's kind of this, this triumphal um, like, uh, parade that they're doing to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. And uh, they load the ark up on this cart. The cart starts moving. And the problem is that God had given specific instructions about how the ark was to be moved. And it didn't involve oxen or a cart. It actually involved these special poles and these certain men carrying them. And for whatever reason, David ignored that. So we don't know why. We don't know why David didn't do it the right way. But he didn't. Still, his intentions are good, right? But then something crazy happens. The, uh, the ark is being moved on this cart. The oxen are drawing the, the ark. And one of the oxen stumbles. And these men who are gathered around the ark to kind of protect it and to watch over it, one of these men reaches out his hands to steady the ark so it doesn't fall. Because, I mean, that would be bad, right? And the moment he reaches out his hand and he touches the ark to stabilize it, the man drops dead in front of everybody. And, of course, everybody freaks out, including David. Except David doesn't just freak out. David gets angry. You know, sometimes fear is not a comfortable emotion for us, and so we do anger instead. I'll tell you, I do anger really well. And, and so did David. And so David gets angry. And, and, and just for a second, I mean, put yourself in David's place. You can imagine why he gets angry. Here David is trying to honor God. Here David is inviting God to dwell in his city and saying, God, I want to be near you. And this crazy thing happens. This man's life is lost in all of this, and it's done in front of everyone. And so David, David is understandably angry because who wants a God like this dwelling next door to you, right? And so David makes a rash decision. He says, forget it. We're not bringing the ark to Jerusalem. I don't want that in my city. And they turn aside and they go to this house, the house of a man by the name of Obed-Edom, and, and they park the ark right in this guy's living room. They're just kind of like, hey, you got to keep this thing. We don't want it. And they leave it there. For three months. Now, frankly, I, I just want to pause here. I think we should all be able to relate with David. Because I think at times we all feel similarly about God. There is this push-pull thing, isn't there, when it comes to us and God. We love him, and yet part of us feels afraid of him. We want closeness with him, but we're afraid of letting him get too close. So even today as we talk about approaching God personally, there's some hesitation in our spirits at this invitation, isn't there? See, I just need you to acknowledge that today, that there is. That no matter how much you love God, no matter how faithful you feel like you are, there, there's still some hesitation about coming into the presence of a holy, all-powerful, miracle-working God. We just need to acknowledge that. That we want God to be close, but not too close. Because what happens if God gets so close that he sees all of my doubts? He sees my lack of faith. What if God gets so close that he sees my struggles? What if God gets so close that he sees the stuff that I do when the doors are locked and the shades are drawn? 
what will he do then? If, if, if a God like that gets close to a person like me, what's going to happen to me? How will, I, how will I live through that? Will I get struck by a lightning bolt? Will I drop dead? What, what if God gets so close that he starts changing me in a way that I find threatening? See, a lot of us make the exact same decision that David did in his anger and in his fear. We, we say, gosh, it'd be nice to be close to God, but, but ultimately we say, it's too risky. I don't want to chance it. I don't know what this means. This is too unpredictable to dwell with the holy God. And so what we do is we leave God in exile. Not in the living room of some guy named Obed-Edom, but, but what do we do? We leave him in exile here in the church, right? We say, hey God, you can stay there up at St. John, and I will come visit you once a week. We will have visitation time, and then I'm going to go home, and you just stay there, God. Let me go live my life. But, but I'd rather you not get too close to me because I don't know what's going to happen. This is too unpredictable for me. Let's go back to David. Time goes on, and David's feeling exactly how we feel about God. And the ark is in the care of this guy, Obed-Edom. And uh, three months goes by, and over those three months, something incredible happens to Obed-Edom. It's like all of a sudden this guy hits the lottery. In modern day terms, it's, it's like there's an Audi in the driveway, and uh, he's back down to a size 32 waist, you know, miraculously, and his kid's teeth got straight and didn't even cost him any money for braces, and, you know, like his hair grows back on his head, and it stopped growing out of his ears and all those other places, and, you know, like life is good for Obed-Edom. Suddenly, he is blessed beyond measure, and everyone sees it, and they understand exactly why. They're like, well, it's, it's dark. It's God's presence there. It's, it's a blessing to this guy. And they start going and reporting this to David. And they're like, King David, King David, I know you're kind of mad and I know you're freaked out, but maybe you should reconsider your distance. And today that's exactly what I want us to do. I want us to reconsider our distance when it comes to this invitation to dwell in God's presence. See, although it can be scary to dwell in the presence of God, here's what I want you to know. It is ultimately a blessing. It is the greatest blessing you can know on this earth. In fact, that's what your eternity will be. It will be dwelling in the presence of God, and it it is going to be so wonderful. But if you don't get comfortable with it now, eternity might be a little uncomfortable for you. See, being in the presence of God, even though though there is this push-pull, it is the greatest blessing you can know. And so today, I just want to challenge you to reconsider your distance to acknowledge that you, like me, are someone who, who sometimes is not fully comfortable with inviting God into your life. And today, I just, I just want you to reconsider that, okay? And, and to do this, I want to look a little bit further into David's story. So we're going to look um, at how this whole thing resolves. David's got this opportunity to dwell with God. He's kind of freaked out about it. The ark's at Obed-Edom's house. And uh, we're going to see how this whole thing resolves. Second Samuel 6, starting at verse 12. It says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David reconsiders. David went up, I'm sorry, David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, they're doing it right this time, by the way, when they had taken six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. I love this. This time David says, before I take my seventh step and Seven's kind of a significant number in the, in the Bible. Uh, David says, before we take our seventh step, we're going to honor God. We're going to sacrifice to him. We're going to give thanks to him. We're going to have no one dying here today as we move the ark. And so they, they make an offering 
It says David's wearing a linen ephod, which is a, which is a priestly garment. He wasn't wearing his royal clothes. That will be important later. It says he's wearing a linen ephod. And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Jerusalem, his capital, Michael, daughter of Saul, who, by the way, is David's wife, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now we're going to talk about her her despising in just a minute. We'll get back to that. But first, let's just talk about this, this oddity that we have here. David bringing the ark up, and he's wearing this linen robe, and he is dancing with all of his might. When is the last time you danced with all of your might? Now, we're running into some cultural things here. The, the, the Hebrew people, they, they were dancing people, and they involved that in their worship. But just think about that for a second. David, David is, is, is there out in front of the ark. There's this whole parade, this whole procession, and David is dancing. Probably not, you know, beautiful ballet. I, I think he's probably more like high-stepping. He's doing the running man or something. I don't know what he's doing, but he's, he's dancing with all of his might. Now, now you're just like, that, that, that's kind of different, right? I didn't know David was a dancer. I knew he was a singer. He was a musician, he was a warrior, but a dancer, this, this is kind of weird. And for some people, this, this almost seems blasphemous. I mean, that's the case with Michael, his wife, Michael, daughter of Saul. See, Michael, daughter of Saul, she grew up as a princess. She grew up in the household of a king. Her father, Saul, was, was the king. And so she, in her mind, is looking at this, and she's going, no, 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 this isn't right. See, I know how a king is supposed to act. I know even how a king is supposed to approach God, how a king is supposed to worship. And this is not, this is not how a king does these things. But here's what I want you to know today. That when it comes to God, he doesn't have a preference in how you approach him. See, there is no right or wrong way. Last week we said, one thing you must do when you approach God is you must do it honestly. God has no room for deception. He says, come at me honestly. I already know it. Just just be honest. But this week we're talking about how God wants you to approach him personally. And see, every person in this room is different. Every one of you is wired differently. You communicate differently. You show affection differently. You like to spend quality time with people in different ways, right? See, we're all different. And God knows that about you. That's how he made you. And so when you approach him, he wants you to approach him in a way that is authentic, that is personal for you. For David, it it was dancing. For you, it doesn't have to be dancing. But what is it for you? See, it's an important question because God doesn't have a preference in how you approach him. But the reality is you do. God is not so highfalutin and uptight that he expects you to come at him a certain way. You know, and this is what royalty do. Well, don't come at me this way and don't turn your back on me and come bowed low to the ground. And and God is like, hey, I I just want you to come because I love you. See, the approach matters more to us than it does to God. You should should approach God in a way that makes sense to you, that speaks to you, a way where you can authentically connect rather than trying to do it some other way. Now, now if you don't know, like, okay, what is my approach? We've done something for you. Up on this website right now, uh, stjstl.net slash style, we put up uh, an inventory. It's it's, it's called Sacred Pathways or or Your Worship Style Inventory. It's by a guy, um, from a book by a guy named Gary Thomas, uh, called Sacred Pathways. And uh, we've got this up on our website. I, I guess you can do it right now. 
Just stay away from, promise me if you do this right now during my message, that's at least a good use of your time. Just promise me you're not going to be liking things on Facebook while you do this, okay? So I draw the line. No Facebooking, but if you want to do this now, it'll only take about two minutes. Uh, you can do this later. It'll be up for a while. Um, but this inventory will show you what your personal approach is. Maybe you've never even thought about this. That some of us, we, we approach God with our intellect. And some of us, we approach God through our senses. And some of us, we prefer to approach God through serving and, and being active and doing things for God. And some of us prefer to approach God through, through music or through outdoors and in nature. And, and all of those are valid pathways. Get this, all of those are valid pathways to approach God. Not only are they valid, but God would, God would love for you to come to him in those ways. Because that's, that's part of the way that he made you. See, your job is to discover what those ways are and to figure out how you might approach God personally. So again, it doesn't have to be dancing with all your might by David. That was, like David, that was his thing. His thing was dancing. But you need to know what your thing is. Because God wants you to come authentically. He wants you to come personally. Now, now the problem with this is that even after you take this quiz, you go home and you take this quiz and you learn this, the problem is that even though God is okay with you approaching him in a variety of ways— we as people, we are not okay with that. We put all kinds of pressure on each other. I, I want you to look further at, at what happens. So um, Michael, daughter of Saul, sees David, and she, she, she is so embarrassed. She's disgusted with him. She hates his guts for carrying on the way that he is, uh, he's carrying on. But, of course, he doesn't know that yet. Watch what happens. They brought the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings there before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins. That's kind of like their ancient goodie bag, you know, from coming to the party. Um, he sends this home with each person in the crowd, both men and women. They got that, so it's a really generous thing. And all the people went home. So when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said... How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, right? She says, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Guys, aren't you glad you're not married to, to her? Um, gosh. But, but here's the truth for us. The world and the church are filled with Michael's daughter of Saul, right? They are. See, while, while God allows diversity, we constantly in everything demand conformity in every way. And so what makes sense to us, what we think is the right way to approach God, we impose upon other people, don't we? We say, no, you can't do it that way. You've got to do it my way. And we do this to each other all of the time. Right? I mean, tell me, Michael, daughter of Saul, was not the last person to judge someone for the way they worshipped, right? You've done it. Maybe even today, you look at someone and you're like, why are they raising their hands? Why are they jumping around like that? That doesn't seem right to me. Or why are they just sitting there with their eyes closed? That doesn't seem right to me. See, we judge each other all of the time. And we know that. And so that's why even when we, we know kind of what way works for us to approach God, we get incredibly self-conscious about that. See, see, I'm amazed that so many of us get self-conscious in our approach of God. Even though God doesn't care, he says, just come to me. I don't care. I'm amazed at how many of us Say, hey, I'm not only intimidated to pray in front of other people, which, which I sort of understand, but that carries over, and a lot of us are intimidated to pray at all. Why? Because we're afraid we're going to get it wrong. 
But God says, just come to me, just talk to me. You don't have to worry about getting it wrong. I just, I just want to hear from you. Or when it comes to, to anything else, Bible study, music, anything, we get incredibly self-conscious even in our private lives because we think we have to conform to someone else's model, someone else's picture of what it looks like to approach God. But God says, no way. I want you, and I want you to come honestly, but I want you to come sincerely, authentically, and personally to me. See, we've all met people like Michael, daughter of Saul. And for that reason, we get self-conscious, but that's not what God would want for us. I want you to see what God wants for us, the kind of attitude God wants you to have when it comes to approaching him. David said to Michael, hey, it was before the Lord. Let's just get something straight, David says. This, This wasn't a show I was putting on for people. It wasn't about the servant girls or you or anyone else who was watching me. That's not what this parade was about. This parade was about one thing. It was about me honoring my Lord and my God. David said, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. David says, for me, this is, this is personal, lady. Right? This is, this is how I show my devotion to the Lord. And I don't care what you think. He goes further. He says, I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I'll make a fool of myself. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And then I love this, the little epilogue. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, I don't know if that was from God, you know, for her blasphemy, or I don't know if that was from David, if David cut her off. That's kind of another message, I guess. But see, I love that line. I love the attitude of David here as he's being challenged and he's being called out. And I mean, if you've ever been called out like this, it's easy to get embarrassed. You know, someone's poking at something that's very sacred to you. And it's, it's easy just to shrink back and to feel, feel offended or, or to feel embarrassed. And, and David says to her, he says, you know what? When it comes to my relationship with God, I'm going to get even more undignified than this. And so if this offends you, if what you just saw offends you, well, prepare to be offended. Because when it comes to me worshiping my God and showing my love to a God who has has taken me from from being a shepherd to being the king over all of Israel, I'm going to embarrass you, I'm going to embarrass myself, and it doesn't matter because I'm going to give my all in worship to God. See, I wonder what it would be like if, if we could embrace that attitude. If instead of worrying about what other people say and, and worrying about being respectable and worrying about doing it the right way, and, and, and just, just let me speak to this community. Those of you who live in West St. Louis County, this is a plague on us. We want to do things the right way. We want to make sure that we fit in and that we are, we are, we are proper. And that can be good in a lot of areas of life. I think, it's, I think it's to our detriment when it comes to our approach of God. Because we let our self-consciousness get in the way of this sacred intimacy that God wants to offer us with himself. See, right now I want you to do something. I I just want you to think about Jesus. And I want you to think about how much he loves you. And if you don't know how much he loves you, let let me just tell you that Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to come to earth and to walk this earth as a man. To experience all of the things that we experience, all of, the, all of the pain, all of the lows, all of the difficulties, all of the frustrations. He didn't have to experience any of that, and yet he did because he loved you. And not only that, Jesus came to die, right? He came to give his life on a cross. Why? So, so that your sin and darkness and shame could be taken away. That's how much he loved you. 
I want you to think for a second about how undignified Jesus let himself get. That he let himself be stripped naked and hung on a cross where he was beaten and mocked and insulted and people made fun of him and they said awful things about him and he endured that. This is well below, way below his station as a king. And yet Jesus endured all of that. Why? Because he loves you. And he knew that in his death he would be taking away your death and giving you life and wholeness and freedom. When you think about Jesus and how much he loves you, what does that make you want to do? Do that thing. It doesn't have to be here. But do that thing somewhere. Don't worry about what's, what's right or wrong or what other people say. Or, or No. See, this isn't about fitting in. This isn't about being proper. This is about intimacy with God. My challenge for you in your walk with God is to stop at nothing until you get to intimacy. It's not about being right. It's not about fitting in. It's not about knowing the protocol. It's about knowing intimacy with your God. That's what he wants for you. And you should stop at nothing until you get it. And if I can anticipate for a second, though, a question on a lot of our minds, it's this question that I hear all the time. The question is, but how? <laughs> but how do I do that? So, so you're saying I'm free, and I get it, and maybe I'll take this quiz, and it'll show me some things about how I should approach God. But, but really, how, how do I do this? How, how do I approach God? How do I connect with him? It's not as easy as just sitting down and, and, and talking to him, right? So how do I do this? Well, today I want to highlight for you three important tools, um, three things that you can use regardless of what your approach is so that you can experience greater intimacy, greater connection with God. Um, there are three things. I call them the big three because I'm from Detroit, and that's what we talk about in Detroit, the big three. Um, so I've got scripture, prayer, and music. And no matter who you are, I guarantee these will play a role somehow in your approach of God. Now, what I hear from people all the time, let's talk about Scripture first, is, is uh, hey, Scripture is great, it's the Bible, that, that seems to, you know, be a good thing. Here in church, we kind of walk through Scripture, you've got me or Pastor Howard explaining the Scripture to you, it all works really well. What I hear from a lot of people is I get home then, and I open my Bible, and I start to read it, and I don't understand anything that I'm reading, right? Have you ever felt that? I'm sure you have. I mean, for a long time in my life, I felt the same way. And part of the problem for me is that I think I was trying to read too much at once. Uh, I wasn't taking it in small enough pieces. But part of it is I just didn't know how to approach Scripture. I didn't know what to do with it. So um, along the way, I came across a template that looked like this. And this helped me. Maybe it'll help you. This is really practical stuff. You might want to take a note on this or grab your phone and uh, take a screenshot, uh, take a quick pic of this so you have it for later. I think this really will be helpful to you if you struggle to read Scripture. Um, so you read a section of Scripture, a small section of, section of Scripture, and then you ask yourself some questions. First question is, what does it say? Basic question, what did I just read? If you don't know what it said, if you don't kind of understand the words you just read, then go back and read it over. Then this next question, what does the rest of Scripture say? So what do I know, either from hearing at church or reading in the Bible, that would help me understand what's going on here? What does the rest of Scripture say? Uh, this, is a, this is a really important question. Next question, what does it tell me about God? See, ultimately, Scripture is there for you. The Bible is there for you, not just so you can learn the stories and be smart. Scripture is there for you because it's, it's trying to tell you who your God is. It's a chronicle of God's character with humanity from the beginning. And uh, if, if you don't learn what it's telling you about God, you're kind of missing the point. That this, is, this is instructing you about who God is so that you know this person that you are to be in a relationship with. Next question is, what does this tell me about myself? 
I think every scripture is speaking to us as humans. It's telling us something about us as humanity or maybe something very specific about me as a person. And then this final question, I I believe this is the question that we hardly ever ask when we do Bible study. And this includes seasoned Christians who've been doing Bible study their whole lives. The question, what will it lead me to do? See, if you get all the way there, you've done a pretty good job. But if you don't ask this final question, you're missing it. That ultimately the Bible is meant to lead us to do something. Maybe that's, that's leading us to repent or to change a behavior that's detrimental to us and others. Or maybe that's leading us to, to, to give thanks to God or praise God or to trust God. Maybe it's leading us to serve somebody, but ultimately it should always be leading us to do something. Right now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a chance just for like 45 seconds to try this out. So there's going to be a scripture on the center screen. These words are going to stay up here on the, uh, on the monitor. And I want you to just kind of look through this scripture and, and try on some of these questions so that you, you can uh, do this later when you go home. So take a look. So no, it's not a whole lot of time, but, but maybe you just got a chance to try that on so you're not just looking at a scripture and going, oh, how nice, but you're saying, what, what, is, this, what is this saying? Well, well, the shepherd here, whoever this guy is, is talking. It's, it's Jesus, by the way. And he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And we say, well, I know in scripture it says that Jesus laid down his life. Okay, what does this tell me about God? This tells me that God wants me to have life. That he's not like a thief who's trying to take things away from me, but, but that he's someone who wants to give me life. Well, what does this tell me about myself? This tells me that Man, first of all, that there are these forces that are, that are competing for my attention, and one wants to lead me to death and steal from me, and one wants to give me life, and so which one am I going to listen to? Which one am I going to trust? Ultimately, what's it going to lead me to do? Hopefully to trust the shepherd, to, to follow him, to stop at nothing until I receive the wholeness that he wants to offer me. Maybe that'll help you when you go home and read Scripture, because Scripture is a powerful way that we get a, get a look into the heart of God. We get to know this person that we are called into relationship with, and we get to understand how we are to function with him. The next thing is prayer. Now, prayer is just conversation. So it should be easy, right? And yet, as I just told you, sometimes conversation is not easy. Me either saying nothing or rambling in the car rides home from the airport with Mr. Danforth. Um, So sometimes good templates help us with our conversation with God. There are some templates for prayer. One is called Acts. Uh, And you can just kind of organize your prayers this way. Instead of um, just saying, dear God, I need, please help, amen. There's a way to have a fuller conversation with God. And that starts with adoration or or praising God for his character. Confession, admitting the things that we've done that that are wrong or out of line with what God wants for us. Thanksgiving, and then supplication. Supplication is a word that means like you make your prayer requests. You ask for the stuff finally. Um, that's a pretty good one. I used that for a long time. I developed my own, though. I like it. It's called party. 
Because talking with God is like a party, I guess. I don't know, but it works, okay? Just not, it worked. Um, so P, praise. So again, uh, starting with acknowledging God, praising Him for who He is, acknowledging His character. That's important not just because God needs flattery. That's an important thing for you to remind your heart who you're speaking to. To, to get yourself in the right, right place. That God is good, that He's loving, He's faithful, He's a provider. It changes your approach when you remember the, the one that you're, you're approaching. Then to admit, to admit my faults, to admit my sins, to admit my shortcomings. Then request, I, I make my asks. Then I thank. See, I think these two things are important together in this order, that I request and then I thank. I thank God for hearing me. I thank God in advance for what he'll do. But I thank him for everything else that's good in my life. Because here's what happens. All those requests that are usually the impetus to drive us to prayer, you know, we, we're worried about something, we're burdened about something, so we want to make a request to God. Um, I, I'm heavy, I'm, I'm coming to God with all that stuff. If I take time after I make the request, and I just thank God for all that's right in my life, it immediately starts changing my perspective, and it gives me faith to face whatever it is that I'm facing. So you request, you thank, and then you yield. You let go. When you spend time with God in, in, in prayer and you bring something to him, you can know that he's capable to handle it. And so you can leave it there with him and walk away free. Or for me, sometimes yield means I just be quiet. I talk to God and then I just rest in his presence and I wait to see if God has anything specific to say or to impart on me. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. That's a good model for prayer for you. So that's prayer, scripture prayer. And now I want to talk about music. Uh, music is important for all of us. We do it in church, whether you're a singer or not. Some of us love music and it speaks to our spirits. Some of us were kind of like, eh, music's not that important to me. Let me just tell you, music is important to all of us. It is. In our culture, if you can make music, if you can sing, if you can play well, we will turn you into royalty in this culture, right? We do. Because music is important to us. It's fundamentally important to us. But music is also important to you in your personal life, in your approach with God. Not just on weekends, but all the rest of the week. Now, music is, is kind of tricky because I, I think for us, music is really like a spoon. And what really matters is not the music. I, I think the substance that we're getting, the nourishment that we're getting is really the words. And so some songs are, are great because they're these deep songs. They're these songs of, of Scripture. They tell a story. And a lot of us in this church specifically love those songs. They, you know, they talk about what God has done, you know, like Cornerstone or something. And they take us through the chronicle of what Jesus has done. And we say, hey, those are the good songs. And then there are other songs that, um, that we don't like as much because they're repetitious and we complain about them sometimes. Just you say the same thing over and over and I get bored. And um, Those are important words for us too. See, music is a spoon. The words are the substance. And in some of those songs that there's repetition, there's a reason there's repetition. And if you don't understand the, the reason, I want you to think for a second about worry. Has anyone in the room ever worried about anything before? Right? You know what that's like. You, you're, you kind of think about something, you're nervous about something, and then what do you do when you worry? You turn it over in your mind again and again and again and again, and pretty soon after you start turning that over in your mind, your gut starts hurting, you start to feel nauseous, you start to feel afraid, all of these other physical things start happening to you. That's the power of worry. Do you realize that worry is nothing more than meditation over a negative thing? See, I think sometimes in, in music and in songs, I, I love songs that are repetitious because they give me an opportunity to focus on an attribute of God or they, they remind me of something that God has done or something that God has said about me, that, that he thinks about me. And, and just like worry, it gives me a chance to turn that in my mind over and over and over again until I am changed by it. 
Maybe that's something you can think about the next time you hear a song and you're like, oh, this repetitious song. I mean, no, use it as an opportunity to, to, to turn worry into something positive. Turn, turn it over and over in your head so it changes your heart. So scripture, prayer, music, regardless of your specific pathway to approach God personally, those are three powerful tools that you can use. But, but here's, here's my point today, okay? Get this if you've got nothing else. God has invited you to dwell with him. And there's no greater blessing in all of the earth than to be in the presence of God. Today, I want you to reconsider the distance that we all allow to creep up between us and God, where we visit God once a week for an hour or so, or maybe 15 minutes a day in our devotional time. And I want to challenge you to reconsider that distance and to invite God into your daily life, to invite his presence there, to learn how to approach him all throughout your day and you will be blessed. Today, as we conclude our service, you're gonna have an opportunity to to experiment with this a little bit more. As we start into communion here in just a minute, there's gonna be scripture on the screen and some instrumental, and there's just an environment set where you can begin to engage God. And maybe you've never done it before. Again, there's no wrong way, just do it. He wants you to come, he wants to dwell with you. Just seek him, however it seems right for you. It's probably right. Uh, Then we're going to sing a song that's a little repetitious and, and it's got a powerful lyric over and over again and we want you just to meditate on that. So please rise as we get ready to come before God in communion. Communion is a sacred thing that God gives to us. God promises to come personally and to dwell with us. He gives us the body and blood of Jesus, the very presence of Jesus in our lives for our life and our salvation and our freedom. And he gives it under the forms of bread and wine. And it's such an amazing thing that this is, this is, this is who God is, that, that he just doesn't want to be near you. He wants to be in you, to fill you and to heal you and to love you from the inside out. That's what we have offered to us today. On the, on the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And it's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I invite you to be seated and to enjoy this time being in God's presence. The ushers will direct you forward if you choose to commune. Uh, But just enjoy this time with your God. He loves you, and it's a great blessing to be here. Welcome to the Lord's table.